Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. teaching mini-series uh, in preparation for Christmas, and uh, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 6 tonight. If you would turn there, we'll take a look at this. Um, why don't you try to imagine Isaiah chapter 6, where we're at, uh, time of stability, the nation as a whole is prosperous, and a long-term leader of five decades has just passed away, and now uh, Israel doesn't, or Judah doesn't really know where to look, and uh, at the same time, um, the hearts of God's people have turned away from him. They've let um, their prosperous situation distract them. You know that sometimes God's people struggle in times of prosperity? Do you know that? That sometimes when things are going really well, their hearts seem to go astray. And it's that that challenge, that crisis moment that often brings us back to him. And um, Israel found themselves in a place like that. So let's uh, let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, and we know this chapter uh, very well. Anybody like to read verses 1 through, well, let's just read 1 through 13. All right, Isaiah is um, prophesying in a time when people's hearts are far from God. And, and um, in preparation for Christmas, as we think about the coming of the Lord, we look back at this, but they're looking forward to this. And um, Isaiah's prophesying to hearts that are far away from God. They're, they're living prosperously. They're going to temple. They're offering sacrifices. And then when they get away from there, they find themselves acting in ways that are contrary to God's will. Their hearts aren't really in it. It's all ritual and no reality. Um, they offer lip service to God, but when it comes to real sacrifice, they're not. their heart's not in it. You know what I mean? And I think that... Um, what God is doing here is he's saying to these people, you need to repent of this. You need to come back. But if you don't, and he already knows that they won't, that they're going to have to go through very difficult times. And so he's challenging them with that. And and um, Isaiah encounters the Lord. And so if you try to imagine this time of stability and the nation as a whole is prosperous, and they've had this long-term leader for five decades, and now that's come to an end. And and they're not sure exactly what's going to do. There's some things that are happening in the background that help us. And I thought I might take us through a little bit of history. We can understand this a little bit better if we, we understand the history of it. So here's verse 1 for us in the NIV. Um, look at this verse with me. And I'd like you to note that Isaiah starts prophesying around 740 B.C., maybe a little bit earlier than that. Maybe, you know, when we talk about B.C. dates, we go backwards in number, we count down, right? Is everybody with me on that? Okay. It's important that we know that because as we go backward in time, it gets closer and closer to the coming of Christ. We're counting backwards in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, forward. So keep that in mind as we, we think about this. Isaiah prophesies during a particular time, and I'd like you to look at this. What are some of the things that we can know from this verse alone? Help me to help me to um, kind of break out some of the things that are being said here. Just from this verse alone, what are some things that we can gather? Okay, Dean? Good, good. I didn't even have that on my list of things, but that follows strongly on Sunday morning's message. That this is a matter of history, okay? What else? Okay, he's there for a while. Good. Yep. Through several, the reign of several kings, right? We don't know how long they are yet. I mean, we do know, but we haven't talked about it yet. Anything else? Sandy, did you have something? Okay. Dean? It's the divided nation. Okay, notice it says concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So uh, at this point in history, we have a divided kingdom. We have a northern kingdom, and what's that called? Israel. Okay, so that's kind of confusing because sometimes Israel means what are some of the options for Israel in the Bible? The, the whole nation, a person, Jacob, and all the tribes together, and anything else? Okay. 
What is, uh, what is Judah comprised of, the southern kingdom? Do you know what tribes? Benjamin and Judah, obviously, right? And then some parts of Simeon we hear have made their way down. And then there's another tribe that just kind of performs a function, and they're probably part of this too, the Levites, right? So you've got the southern kingdom, and they're made up of these different, uh, these different groups. But this is not the northern kingdom. And what this tells us, I would suggest, is that Isaiah's primary ministry is the southern kingdom. Okay, So that's really important, especially in light of the time that he's prophesying. Um, well, there's one other thing here. And it comes at the very beginning of the verse. What is it? That, do you see anything? It's a vision, okay? And what does that suggest about what Isaiah believes he's communicating? The Word of God. He's, he's communicating something on God's behalf, right? And we're seeing that here, that this is a vision concerning Jerusalem and Judea. He feels under divine compulsion to do this. He believes his message is from God. It's at a time in history. It's at a time that spans a long history, okay? And then we know that he prophesied in a particular place, and so all of those things are really important as we think about this. Uh, at this point in the story, Isaiah has already been prophesying for at least some time. We don't know how much, but some time leading up to Isaiah 6. With me? Okay. And now he's having this encounter with the Lord. Is it possible that after all that we've been through with God, there, there may be something else he wants to show us? I hope. Okay, so, I mean, Isaiah's already a prophet. He's already apparently hearing from the Lord and communicating that message and probably one of the holier people that you might know. And then he has an encounter with God, and it, it challenges with some things. Let's look at this next thing here. I think this is our timeline. And I don't know, that's kind of tiny if you're in the back, but <clears throat> I wanted you to see this. Up at the top, we have the green line. That's Uzziah, okay? Um, Uzziah was a king for 52 years, we hear some of that, I'm not showing it on this timeline, but some of that he was co-regent with his father. So what does co-regent mean? Anybody want to guess? Reign, reigns with. They reign together, right? And probably the father takes a superior role, but there's responsibilities that fall to the son. And you can see there with his son, Jotham, that there's a little bit of a co-regency there in terms of the timeline. We can see that. We know that from the datings of when the kings rule. And then just barely, maybe, if at all, Jotham and Ahaz, and then Ahaz and Hezekiah. And if you'll look down here, I didn't put this on here, but there are some kings in the north that are prophesying to Israel, to the northern kingdom, and they would be Joel, Amos, Jonah, and Hosea. All would have been contemporaries um, of Isaiah and Micah in the, south, in the south. Okay, so keep that in mind as you're reading through these books just know that they don't overlap um, in terms of how you read them. They're in, they feel like you don't interrupt Isaiah to go to Micah, but these two are contemporaries of one another. And by the way, these lines are not their lifeline. This is, in, in the king section, this is how long they reigned. In this section, it's how long they prophesied. So I'm, what I'm saying that for is that when you see Isaiah's life here, uh, he didn't start prophesying right out of the womb. He had to grow up a little bit, right? So his life actually a little, little bit longer than this, and it would have stretched back that way uh, and covered some of those other prophets in some of the reign of King Uzziah, all right? So he prophesied during the reign of those kings, and I think that's really important to understand is that, and, and keep this in mind, I think this is really important is that the prophetic ministry of Isaiah outlasted several national leaders, okay? So I would ask you, who has more influence on the nation, these guys or the prophets? I mean, it's hard to say because as the king goes, usually the nation goes, but the prophetic ministry of Isaiah uh, was really significant. And I want to talk about that a little bit more in just a second, but Uzziah dies somewhere around 740. You can see that date right here, okay? So if you follow that green line, about 740 B.C., we know that date. And uh, he was a long and prosperous king. You can see that in 2 Kings 15, 
1 through 7, if you'd like to, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And he did so well at ruling that he thought that he deserved a promotion from king to priest king. And he went into the temple and he burned incense. Okay, Somehow, these guys, when they start ruling well, they start to get the big head. You know, and this is what happens with Uzziah. He gets the big head and he goes into the uh, to the temple and he burns incense like a priest. But that role of priest king is reserved for another son of David, isn't it? Not for him. Okay, and those roles are distinct till the coming of Christ. So he goes in the temple and burns incense, and that's probably around 750 is what's thought. This is why Jotham would have had this longer co-regency, is because when he went to the temple. Um, he was struck with leprosy because of his pride. And he had to go in and live as, as a virtual exile, and he didn't get to be buried in the royal tombs because of this. After he'd been king, I think, longer than anybody else. Uh, the only king that may have been king longer is Ahab in the northern kingdom. And so this is kind of interesting that this plays out this way. So for about 10 years, he lives in exile. Jotham rules, and... Um, Uzziah eventually passes away. But I I want you to know that he was a good king. Uh, He didn't stay in his lane, though. And God sends him into that exile with leprosy. So uh, he was a good king. One of the things that he did is he secured uh, the fortifications of Jerusalem. In addition to that, he built up defenses. He subjected several of Israel's enemies, including the Philistines. He made alliances with other nations that caused Judah to be strong against the Assyrians, who are the threat that are remaining in the north. And so he did some really important things, but at the end of the day, his pride got him. And uh, we have to watch out for that, don't we? When we do really well, we need to understand that God is in it. We didn't accomplish all of this ourselves. I had a professor that used to say that if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know they didn't get there themselves. Somebody put it there, and that's what we often are when we do great things, turtles on fence posts that God has helped, all right? John Oswald probably, he wrote his commentary back in 1986, is still considered the best commentary on Isaiah. And he said uh, in his commentary that the book of Isaiah deals with several questions at the heart of a theological and international crisis. And um, you know that when we have crises, crises in our lives, one barely wait, one rarely waits for the other to finish. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like the crisis doesn't say, "Oh, well, we'll wait till you're done with that crisis and then come." No, there's overlapping things that are taking place here, and you can see that there's an international crisis and there's a theological crisis. And I want to ask you to consider which one is more uh, significant, which one has greater magnitude to it. The, 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 the theological crisis or the international crisis? And the international crisis is that the nation of Assyria has set itself towards conquest. I think I might have a map here of this, and if I do, I'll be glad. Hey, what do you know? There it is. Okay, you can see the kingdom of Assyria, and uh, its capital is, anybody know? Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And they occupy the area of Tigris-Euphrates. This is prior to the Babylonians rising up and and uh, helping to defeat Assyria. And uh, they're they're um, conquest oriented. Okay, so they're trying to expand their land, and so their wanton lust is driving them south to control a trade route to Egypt. You can see this right here. Okay. There's this uh, area goes right through the land of Israel, and uh, it's a massive trade route that goes between Damascus and even further up all the way to Egypt. And so what they want is they want control of that because where there's a trade route, there's money, right? And where where there's a trade route, there's a possibility for all of their merchants to be able to pass through without tariffs and all of that to go and to trade. And so they want to conquest this area, and so they're pressing south. And uh, they feel it in the north. They feel it in the northern kingdom. And they're starting to feel it in the southern kingdom. And Isaiah deals with this a lot. And it even comes up in chapter 7 where we have some of the Messiah text. That there's this concern about Assyria 
uh, rising up in the north and wanting to push down into the south. And so the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they're right in the way of this expansion, and the highway goes right through the promised land. And I think this is intentional, by the way. Have you ever wondered why God put his, uh, his people right there? Anybody ever wonder that, or do you know the answer? This is a land bridge between Europe over there, Asia over here, and Africa down there. It's a land bridge. It's, it's a brilliant placement for the epicenter of the gospel. So God did that. He knew what he was doing in putting them right there. And so Assyria is pressing down, and they want to take that over. So that's, that's on people's minds, and especially now that King Uzziah, the, the source of their longstanding security. Some people knew no other leader than Uzziah. I mean, they knew his son, but he's been the king. What's going to happen now? He's the one that secured our security, right? How are we going to get past all of this? But then, in addition to that international crisis, there's a theological crisis that's brewing. And while the southern kingdom of Judah was prosperous, they were starting to grow cold towards God. Okay, and this sometimes can happen. And as, as we get comfortable in life, we start to think maybe we did this or we start to feel that we don't need God as much because we've got all that we need. And we forget that He's the source of all of that. And so they were growing cold towards God. And the first thing was to go was their heart. This, is, this seems to me to always be the case. The first thing that happens is our heart starts to turn away from God, okay? And it happens that the next thing that goes is our ethics. Our ethics go. Like, if our heart's not in it, we're not going to live the right way, okay? Why do it if it doesn't really matter to us? Then the next thing that goes, uh, I think, is, um, you know, we can have our heart and our ethics go, and we can still go through the motions. But the final thing is that we just stop doing anything for God, okay? They're not quite there in Judah because what we get is that the prophet's saying, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they're still doing ritual. They're still saying God's the important one. They're still going to temple and offering sacrifice. They're still claiming their religion. They may even do the pilgrimages and the feasts, but their hearts aren't in it. And so they're starting to go down this road, and we, we hear Isaiah begin to call them out. Like in chapter 5, even before this, when he says, Woe to you who are heroes at drinking. Tell me if that doesn't describe our culture. Hero, the, like we celebrate those who can get blasted. That's, that's a, and then, what are those who say, let, let God hurry that we may see it? Like God do things on our timetable. It's a self-centered way of looking at things. Do it, do it in my time rather than in your time. And you can see the list of woes that are there, but... The problem is, is that they're still doing ritual, but their hearts are moving away from God. Their ethics are moving away from God, which means that they're defrauding their neighbors, and they're robbing the widow and the orphan, and they're using ways to cheat to their own advantage. Their hearts aren't in it. Their ethics have gone, and not long they're going to cast out their ritual as well. Now, I don't think God wants heartless ritual Sometimes ritual may be the only thing that we're clinging to in a moment, and it could be in that moment that we turn around. You understand that God doesn't desire or require heartless ritual. He wants all of us. He wants all of us. Okay? So this is the theological crisis, and the theological crisis is far more important, but it rarely seems so. Okay? Think about this for a moment. What probably seems more of a problem to the average person in Judah? Assyria? or the fact that they've grown a little cold towards God. Okay? Let me reframe it in our modern-day mindset, which is a bigger concern, China or the lukewarmness of the church? Come on, think about that. That's what it should be, isn't it? And sometimes it's not. We think about other things. We let other things capture our imagination and our concern. So you can see how this could be relevant, the pressing question about what will we do in our time of crisis, our time of difficulty, is will we be faithfulness, faithful to God or not? Um, 
or will we wait till the the crisis is over? See, I think the two are wrapped up in each other. The personal crisis, whatever it is, is the proving grounds of faith. Do you agree? Like whatever crisis we're going through, we don't wait till that's done and then go, "Okay, God, now I'm going to pursue you. Now I'm going to serve you." Right? This is the proving grounds of faith. Is what do we do in our crisis moments? Do we continue to be faithful to God? Remember, I think it's in First Peter, or it could be Second Peter. It's one of his letters where he says, "Let those who suffer according to God's will trust entrust themselves to their Creator and continue to do good." But those who suffer according to God's will, it may be at times that God wants us to go through a difficulty. What are we to do in that moment? We're to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. Okay? We don't stop doing good because it's not an opportune time. We keep going because God's worthy. He's worthy of that. Okay? So the faithfulness of God doesn't wait for our personal crisis to stop, or faithfulness to God, I should say. Uh, these two are wrapped up in each other, and they're the proving grounds. King Hezekiah models this perfectly when the Assyrians come to town eventually. Do you remember that? The Assyrians come, they gather around the, the gates, and they they write this letter, and they send it to Hezekiah, and they belittle God, and they say, your God can't really stand in the way of what we're going to do to you. And what does Hezekiah do? Do you remember? What does he do? Puts him on his pillow. Yeah. I think he goes into the temple and lays it out. And he prays to the Lord. He said, Lord, you see their threats. And then, what does he do? Anybody remember? What's what's the last thing he does before uh, he gets up in the morning? (laughs) He goes to bed, doesn't he? Goes to sleep. And this is the point I'm trying to make. And I, I think Peter does the same thing. You remember when Peter's getting ready to be executed? Uh, he goes to sleep. And I think it's a wonderful sign that he trusts in the Lord. There is something to be said about being able to entrust the world to the Lord and go to sleep. Okay, And so Ezekiah does that. He wakes up in the morning and God took care of the problem. 175,000 Assyrians wiped out. And do you know that we found there is a secular reference to this that says that it was rats that came in and killed all the Assyrians overnight. That is a miracle if it was rats that did it. You know what I mean? I don't know how it happened, but um, God took care of the problem. John Oswalt says that here are the questions that Isaiah addresses in the book, the whole book. Is God truly sovereign, the sovereign of history? And uh, if godless nations are stronger than God's nation. Okay, so in other words... If this stronger nation comes in and defeats Judah, is God still the sovereign of history? He addresses that. And then another question is, does might make right? Is this, whoever's the strongest, does that make them right? Okay. And I think uh, we know the answer to that. That's not, that's not the case. And then what is the role of God's people in the world? Does divine judgment mean divine rejection? What do you think? If God disciplines us, does that necessarily mean rejection? No. He can discipline us, and he does for our good as a loving father. And what's the nature of trust? What does trust look like is addressed there. What's the future of the Davidic monarchy? We talk about this in the end of this chapter. And are not the idols are not idols stronger than God and therefore superior to him? Because the the thinking of the day, their worldview was if one army defeats another army, it means their gods are stronger. That was the thinking of the day. And so what does that say when the Babylonians come in and sack Jerusalem? Is the Babylonian god stronger than Yahweh? No, certainly not. God, well, he sent them to do it, didn't he? Yeah, but not everybody understood that because they're looking at it from their perspective. I was shocked to read this from... uh, Oswald, and I thought it was really good. Surely it's not far from the mark to say that Judah survived Ahaz's apostasy because of Isaiah's ministry and that Hezekiah was faithful as he was and could exercise trust at the critical moment for Jerusalem's survival on account of that same ministry of Isaiah. He's saying that because somebody stood there and prophesied and called people to uh, trust in the Lord that 
that Judah was stronger, and then it didn't go into judgment immediately. They do go into judgment later. But it seems from the book of Isaiah and, and the historical books that the judgment of God was pushed off and delayed because people responded to the ministry of Isaiah. Okay, so let's take a look into this particular vision. We did read it, and we're going to uh, take a look at it a little more. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me as we talk about an awesome vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorposts and the, thresh, the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. All right, so we have a, a vision of, the, of an awesome God. And Uzziah was the one man who people felt could really keep Judah safe. He had built up defenses, as we said, subject, subjected um, people that were a thorn in, in Judah's side. He made allies that would support the people of God. And anytime there's somebody like Uzziah that passes away in a transition of leadership, there is a, a feeling of uncertainty among people. Like, what, what kind of leader are we going to get next? They wonder if this new leader will measure up to the old one. And so if we put ourselves in this situation, and it's not hard to imagine that we can put ourselves in a situation where... Um, Things are unstable in the world, right? If we put ourselves in that situation, then we can understand a little bit about what uh, they felt during this time, what Isaiah must have felt during this time. And he has this awesome vision of God, and uh, when that happens, it will make our problems and the problems of our nation look small. The long-reigning king has died, yes, but the Lord of Heaven's army sits on the throne, and I, I want to proclaim that tonight, that despite the, the weird times that we live in, the times that seem very unstable, and we, it, it feels as if, and I, I can't speak because I've been here for all of our nation's history, but it feels as if we're very divided as a nation, maybe much more than we have been in a long, long time, okay? And I wonder if during that time, if we feel a little bit of uncertainty. I know there's a lot of people that do. I've talked to a lot of people that they feel just like, Man, what is going to happen? And what we need to know is that regardless of who is in the White House, God's on the throne. Come on, true? And we can trust that He is a good God and He will work on behalf of His people. I'm not suggesting we are the equivalent of Judah uh, as America. I'm just suggesting to you that we still, we serve a God who is on the throne and we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we are living in allegiance to a king, and we are part of a kingdom that is superior to our nationality. That's really important to understand, is that there's something that will outlast all of this. Chuck Colson, in one of his books, I think Kingdoms in Conflict, talked about, uh, one day we may see all of our monuments toppled over, and we may see our nation lying in ruins, but there will still be a kingdom of God. Okay? I'm not hoping for that, but I'm telling you that if that's the case, we have a kingdom that cannot be taken and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And those things rhyme, and I just thought of it. Everything that Isaiah saw and heard, uh, I think, would have been strange to him. Don't you, as you read through this vision, we can put ourselves there a little bit, but it's a little bit strange. And when it's seen in this way, it helps us to see that Heaven is just as real as earth. I suspect that uh, we may have a hard time with all of this, like that we live in a material world and the things we see seem more real than the, the, God, the, the God that we don't see. Okay? So imagine you're probably like any person who lives in a material culture that it's hard to... You have to walk by faith in the reality of God and we sometimes walk by sight and not by faith. Verse 1, it says, I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne. Okay? High and exalted here. Verse 1, he sat on a towering throne. It's telling us that the high and exalted is modifying 
um, what aspect of the sentence? His throne. His throne is lifted up. See, he, he looks upon it. Um, and this is the theme of the whole book: is that God is exalted and humanity is not. Okay, this is the this is the theme of all of Isaiah: is that God is exalted, and anyone else who would try to exalt themselves above God will be diminished. Okay, there's no mind that's more brilliant than God. Come on, true. There's no power that's greater than His power. There's no scheming or planning that will outlast or conquer His plan. He will overcome, and He has a towering throne. And that means that only God is exalted. All of the thrones, kingdoms, personalities will be humbled in the end, and only God will be exalted. And, and you know that's true, right? That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord, right? Okay, so there will be a humbling. And we can do it now or we can do it later, but we will acknowledge him for what he is. And he is exalted. Notice in verse 1 here, once again, the train of his robe filled the temple. What exactly Isaiah saw, I'm going to address in just a minute, but it's strange that the description that Isaiah gives of God is of his robe and not his person. Don't you think that's a little strange? Like he's talking about his clothes and the fact that whatever this is that he's seen is filling the temple. It's immense. There's an immensity about the presence of God here. Is he being a little bit coy or shy about this like Paul? Remember when Paul says in uh, it's Second Corinthians somewhere where he, I think chapter 12, I knew a man above 14 years who was caught up into the third heaven and he saw things which are not permitted uh, to be talked about. Okay, Is there a coyness here? Like he just, he doesn't want to address things. Like you know how there's a shyness within almost a superstitious shyness about using the name Yahweh, right? In in Jewish literature, they they actually, they change what's said in order to avoid saying Yahweh. They use Adonai instead, okay? When the word is Yahweh, there's like a shyness about doing that. We don't want to in any way take the name of the Lord in vain, and I can respect that. But is that what's happening here? I, I don't know, but he's not describing God himself, but the robe, the train of his robe fills the temple. It's as if this is what he sees. Then his description moves from God away from God to the creature surrounding him. Don't you think that's kind of interesting? Like you could be telling us a little more about what God is like, but he he deals with the creatures. Suddenly, the seraphim in verse 2. Okay, look at what it says there, verse 2. Above him were seraphim each with six wings, with two, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet, with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. Seraphim, the Hebrew seraphim is derived from a root, serap, which means burn. I think this is kind of interesting in light of what's going to happen here, that they're burning ones, okay? Seraphim. And some want to connect the seraphim with the angel-like cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and 10 and Revelation 4, 6 through 8. But the duties and the location of the seraphim are distinct from those of the cherubim. The cherubim were below the throne, and they provided locomotion for the throne room of God. Okay, So the seraphim are exalted high. So there's a seraphim and a cherubim if we want to make that kind of distinction. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know for sure. Maybe they could be describing something similar, but it seems the function's different. But if the creatures, here's the thing that occurs. If the creatures surrounding God are awesome, right? Are you following where I'm going? How much more awesome is the God that they serve? Okay? And I think Isaiah is enamored with how awesome these creatures are. But it says something about the kind of God that we serve, okay? He is even more awesome. Look at what they're saying here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Let's talk about the whole earth being full of His glory. God is everywhere. His work, He's working in places we would never expect. He is working even 
in the history that involves the Assyrians and the Babylonians, as Miss Evelyn points out, right? There are things that God is doing that His um, presence and His ability, they're filling the whole earth, and there's something of God that can be seen in all of that, okay? But then he says, he said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. What is, what is that about? Why holy? There's a couple options that have been suggested. The first, the first one I don't think has good merit to it, but um, some have said that holy, holy, holy is referring to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and I like that one. I wish it were that one, but I don't think that's what this is about. I think what this is about is this is conveying um, intensity, okay? First holy, and we do this in English. We have what's called the positive. If you say something, you're saying a positive, okay? I'm not saying it's positive or negative in terms of your tone, but if you're making an assertion of some kind or indicating something, that's called a positive, okay? That's in grammar, it's called a positive. So then if you want to say, well, this is more than that, then you do a comparative, Okay, so you say, maybe for example, you would say, uh, good, that's the positive. What's the comparative of good? Better, it's better, okay? And then if you want to say the next degree up, like, okay, this is the end of the line, best, okay? What is it? I think I just said it, didn't I? Good, better, best, superlative. You have the positive, you have the comparative, you have the superlative. In, in Hebrew, they don't, they don't necessarily do words like that. What they do is they compound. Are you with me? So you say things repetitively for emphasis into the third degree. That's all you need to say the superlative. So there's holy, okay? God is holy, and that's true, and it says that several times in the Bible where it just says the positive about Him. But then there are times where holier, is used. That's our comparative, is holier. Okay? Holy, holy, holy. That's the superlative, holiest of all. That's what this is saying about God. There's nothing higher. There's nothing more separate from us than Him. Okay? And I understand. You're going to say, we're made in the image of God and Christ became flesh like us. Yes, that's the eminence of, of who He is and Him coming close to us and drawing close to us. But in terms of his infinity and immensity, you can't get more distant from us than him. Do you understand what I mean by that? That he is he is transcendent. Okay? He's far above us. And we need to understand that in order to appreciate him and understand how worthy he is of our lives. Okay? But it's for that very reason that it's so wonderful that he condescended himself to us and came down. You understand what I mean by that? That he who was holiest of all came down and touched the unholy thing. Jacob. Yes. And that's a good that's a good point, is that they're they're without sin, they're constantly observing in the presence of God his holiness, and that that's their constant refrain, is that he is holiest of all. Thank you. That's a good good contribution. I thought you were gonna steal my next point about Isaiah. I'm glad you didn't, but I think uh we're all we're all going there in our minds, so that's very good. Okay. He says holy, 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 and then he says 
is the Lord of hosts. This is, uh, in the Hebrew, be Yahweh Sabaoth, okay? Lord of hosts, Lord of heaven's armies. If you have the NIV, it's Lord Almighty, okay? And I think what the NIV is doing is translating the concept of what this is about, is that he is the holy uh, Lord of uh, hosts, whatever host means. So some suggestions have been made about this. The host could be Israel's armies, okay? Or heaven's armies, the angels, okay? And uh, the International Bible, uh, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia thinks that it's probably this whole concept combined, that he is the Lord of all power. And that's the point here, is that whatever threat Assyria may face, God is greater than that, okay? So, it seems to me one thing that could be said is that really that would eradicate the international crisis. What they need to focus on is the spiritual crisis that they're going through, the, the theological crisis in their relationship to God. He's the Lord of hosts, and he's making himself known, okay? So let me go back here to the beginning. I said we'd talk more about this in just a second. It says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, Okay, can anybody see a problem with that? Okay, that's true. Yeah. The small ones are Adonai. Okay, that would be Lord, which uh, sometimes bore the, the nuance of like the husband or the caregiver. Okay. But then if it's all caps, then it's Yahweh. It's the personal name of God, the one who is. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, that's what I was, I was thinking about here is that in John one eighteen, it says no one has seen God at any time except God, the one and only. That uses that word of Jesus, God, the one and only, has made him known. So how do we reconcile those two things? I saw the Lord, and no one has seen the Lord at any time. So I, I yeah, that's a good, that's good. I didn't even have that here as a, I wanted to share some options, but that's a good one. Anybody else have a thought on that? Yeah, yep, when a, Moses says, let me see your, I want to see you face to face. God says, no one can see me face to face and live, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and then I'll pass by and you'll see what essentially is my after presence, my afterburner. (laughs) You'll see the residue that comes after me. And that was enough to light Moses' face up. Okay, so that's good. Any, Any other thoughts? Okay, good. Anybody else have a thought? I was, I was going to suggest um, three possibilities here, and one is that the exception proves the rule, but that's, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that because it does say no one has ever seen God at any time. That sounds very definite, doesn't it? So maybe this is the exception that proves the rule, and Ezekiel saw something, and Adam and Eve saw something. I, I don't know. That's, that's a hard one. Um, another option is this, and I'm going to tell you, I've heard this, but I don't know that I like it much better, is that some think of this um, vision as of the pre-incarnate Christ, okay? so that this isn't the Father. I just don't know how you make that distinction, but, but I think a better one is what Sandy said. I think this is the best option here, is that this is a vision given to Isaiah in which he's not seeing... God, he's seen a vision that God is giving him of himself. And I think that's probably the best option here. You can decide on that, but it's hard to reconcile. No one has seen God at any time with, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So we have to somehow try to reconcile those two things, I think. Okay, notice it says here then, um, high and lifted up and seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. Filled the temple. Uh, This is an unusual word for temple. I don't know if you knew this, but when you come to this verse, if you look this up in Strong's or in another lexicon, 
you're going to find that this is not the usual word for temple. The usual word for temple is uh, the word bayit, B-A-Y-I-T, B-A-Y-I-T. And it's used over 80% of the time, maybe more. So there's about 500, I think, 60 occurrences of this. Maybe it's 16. It's over 500 occurrences of temple in the Old Testament. Okay, and something like, uh, it's 560, something like 490, I think, is by it. So that's the majority of them, right? Okay, but the word that's used here is hekal, H-E-K-A-L, if it matters to you. And uh, this word is used about 50 times in the Old Testament. That means about one, one in ten times when it refers to the temple, it, it's using this. Um, by it means house. This is the house of the Lord, okay? Whereas hekal means palace, isn't that interesting? That this is the Lord's palace. In the year that King Uzziah died, the king, the physical king, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the palace. Now, he's talking about the temple, okay? Make no mistake about it. But he's using a nuance here that suggests God is king. Do you see that? Okay, that's really important because that's all through this passage is God is king over Judah. Uzziah died, but he's not the real king. He's not the full king. Israel, Judah, still has its king on the throne. And you understand that that's true of all of God's people. We still have our king on the throne. And nobody can remove him. Come on, that ought to offer us some kind of comfort in shifting times and when things aren't going well and, you know, it's a bad market or... We don't like who got elected or whatever it is. There's still a king on his throne. Wonderful. Okay. That's the word here. So this looks to me to be really relevant. I think uh, it should mean that we look to God more than we look to people. Okay. Notice in verses 5 through 7, I've got to hurry here, but an awful realization. And by awful, I mean that there's something that is awe-striking about it. And even perhaps a little, it's, it's bad from Isaiah's perspective. Uh, look at 5 through 7 with me, and, and let's read it here. It says, At the sound of their voice, the doorpost shook. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Once again, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, I see Him, and I realize in seeing Him, how undone and unholy I am. And this is what I was afraid Jacob was going to say. And I think he probably was going to, but he knew where I was going. <laughs> is that the closer we get to God and his presence, there's a tendency to feel unworthy of him. And that's a good thing. I'm not suggesting we should flee from him or run from him. We need to know that he's given us salvation because of his grace. But in and of ourselves, we're not worthy of it. And we need to be aware of that that he's made us fit for his presence by um, imputing righteousness to us rather than because we come and go, man, I'm just God's gift to himself. Like, that's not the case at all. We, we're there because he's granted us access to his presence. But Isaiah, he sees God. And you can see this again and again. Remember when Peter, the fisherman, um, Jesus comes into his boat and preaches from there. Jesus, the carpenter, says to Peter the fisherman, uh, cast your nets down and bring in a catch. And Peter's like, we've been doing this all night. The nets are heavy. We're tired. I can't help but think what's going through his mind is, what do you know about fishing? Right? And he does it anyway. Do you remember what Peter's response was when they pulled the fish in? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He, he became aware of something in Jesus that of his holiness. And when that happens, I don't think we can help but feel like, man, you are you are so awesome and beautiful. And I think holiness, one great definition of holiness is moral beauty. When you look at God's holiness, you see something of his moral beauty. Have you seen something that is so innocent and pure that it, it moves you to tears? This is the beauty of God's holiness. 
So in contrast to that, Isaiah sees his own unworthiness. And Isaiah probably was a pretty good, pretty good guy compared to his neighbors, wouldn't you think? He's a prophet already. And his life most likely is consumed with making God known already. He already loves God and wants to do the right thing. But he says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But what we need to, what we need to realize uh, in this, I think, is how far humanity is from God's moral perfection. I think probably a lot of people in Judah felt like a lot of people that we know do. I'm okay, and you're okay, and they're all making comparisons based on how they, how good they are in comparison with the really bad people. You know what I mean? That a lot of uh, people think I'm pr- I'm a pretty good guy, and I deserve, you know, God's blessings because I haven't really done anything wrong. I haven't killed or committed adultery, or I don't steal, and you know, I try to let people in when they're trying to in the parking lots, you know and hold the door for people and and things like that. And that's really, we can do all of those things and have self, selfishness eating away at our hearts. Okay, And we can have godlessness. Godlessness is not the same thing as sinfulness. Do you know that? Godlessness is to live practically as atheists, like he doesn't matter. You can go through life, you can come to church, and you can live the rest of your life, every moment, away from the body of Christ in a way that God doesn't really matter. That's godlessness. And that's what Israel was doing is they'll go to temple, they'll offer their sacrifices, they'll confess their sins, and then the rest of their lives, God is pushed to the peripheral, and it's all about them. Okay, so Isaiah says his particular problem is his lips, he's got unclean, an unclean mouth. And if you're a prophet, the one thing you want is to be able to have a pure have a pure mouth in order to speak for God. And uh, he's realizing how far he is from the holiness of God. We start to see in this the problem is us. <clears throat> I would like you to notice that Isaiah made no excuse before God. Okay, um, And I, I wanted to say that when you get into the presence of God, there will be no making excuses. But I can't say that because Adam and Eve, when they got in the presence of God, they made excuses. Right? So it can happen. Is it advisable? No. Because it's kind of foolish to tell somebody who knows everything. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, there's times that I lied to my parents to their face when I knew that they knew what I'd done. But I'm like, you can't prove it. You know what I mean? God can prove it. Uh, somewhere there's a big jumbo screen that he's going to replay. I'm just kidding. I don't know how that's going to work, but you don't dare lie to him about these things. Okay. And we see the problem is us. He makes no excuse. He confessed that he and the people that were around him were far from God's holiness. And this is this is what confession is. You know, confession, I don't know what the Hebrew word is, but the Greek word um, is to say the same word. It's same word. If you break the parts, um, it means same word. It's agreement. When you confess, it's agreement. Okay, What are you doing? You're agreeing with God about your own state. Remember what David says in Psalm 51, your judgments concerning me are right. That's to not make any excuse anymore. To say what you've said about me is right. I agree. Guilty as charged. Okay, that's the beginning of true relationship with God. There has to be a repentance, a confession of sin, and repentance to be willing to turn away. Um, and so then he says in verse six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, "See." This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So somehow the, it's appropriate that the fiery ones, they bring this live coal, and they touch the lips of Isaiah, <clears throat> and he's pure. There's a custom um, that was happening in Isaiah's day in idol worship that may give us some more insight into this. And uh, 
this may be what this is referencing. Greg Bill in his book, um, We Become What We Worship. If you're interested in looking that up, I have marked out for you after if, you can, if you'd like to know more about it. But there was this custom um, in idol- idolatrous worship that when the idol was made in whatever idol factory it came out of, probably somebody's shop, they would bring it to their idol temple. And one of the things they would do is they would touch the lips of the idol with a coal. And it was considered that when that happened, the presence of the God would come into the idol and purify them. And it would go from being a pure ob- or a abstract object to now possessing the presence of a person. Okay? So I think that's really provocative to think of it that way, that this could be here something that's referring back to that. So after the idol was made, brought in the temple, as part of its commissioning, the priest would take that coal, they would touch the lips and the image, and the presence of a god was said to take up residence in that idol from, the, from that point on so that it could hear and it could speak and it could see. Okay, So why would something like that be happening in the presence of God here? You see, before it would be considered undone, it would be considered incomplete. And what Beale suggests is that there's somehow, uh, this may be a ritual that mocks the lie with the reality. Okay, think of this for a moment, and you can decide what you want to do with it. But having his lips touched, Isaiah can now more accurately bear the image of God. After all humanity in its truest form is made in the image of God, if anyone bears the image of God in his humanity, uh, whom he's created, he can now, now Isaiah's lips have been touched and have been cleansed and sin forgiven, and he's commissioned to speak for God to his people. After all, what is an idol but an image of the God? Okay, and so what may be happening here is God is saying, they think that they're doing something, but what I'm going to show is that the true image of God is in you, okay? And I need you to represent me to this nation that's lost sight of what all that is. It's an interesting take on all this, and the most significant thing to realize is that God meets us in our awareness of our need, and what Isaiah did is confess his brokenness out loud, and God made provision so that he was not undone. In verses 8 through 10, um, there's an awesome responsibility. God says, whom Shall I send and who will go for us? You're in the presence of the Lord. You've seen his awesomeness. Much of the things that would capture our fascination, if you saw some kind of vision of God like that, I think would fade. And, you know, remember that song, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus, and the things of earth will grow, grow strangely dim. Um, this is some, I think this is something like that, is that when we've seen the beauty of God, what else can compare with it? Right? What in culture is worth more than that? And I think that if you've ever experienced the presence of God in a powerful way, it's hard to deny that, and it's hard to turn away from that, and it's hard to find anything else in this life that compares with it. There is nothing, okay? But people have gone in search of it after having experienced the presence of God. It talks about that in Hebrews 6. So, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will. And the response to God and His presence is to participate with Him in His work. And I think this is an important aspect of um, experience in the Lord is that when we really see Him for what He is, we want to be part of what He does. That's love. Okay. Whom shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I will. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, um, there... He said to me, go and tell this people, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be healed, okay? Did you notice here he said, say to what people? This people. Okay. Say to this people, there's alienation and distance in that. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen. If you're a parent, maybe you've done this. Um, but have you ever seen your kids misbehave and you're telling your spouse about it and you're like, 
you know what your kids did today? <laughs> Distance. Like, that's not me. That didn't come from my side. That came from your side. You see, and we're making a joke about this, but there's something about this is that God is saying, this people does not act like my people. This people is not like my people. And so he suggests an alienation from God. And Isaiah is not tasked here with trying to harden their hearts. This is the command, is that he's not trying to harden their hearts, you understand. This is a rhetorical way of saying, you must warn them, but they will not listen to you. You must tell them, but they're not going to hear you. You must show them, but they're not going to see. That's what God is saying here. It's a rhetorical device to say, go do this. He's not hoping that they won't see, but he's saying this is the natural outcome of idolatry. We become like what we worship. These people can't see because they worship gods that can't see. And they don't hear because they worship gods that don't hear. And they don't understand because the gods that they worship don't understand. So Isaiah is tasked with this awesome responsibility. I have to hurry here because we're out of time. People become like what they worship. And that's what he's referring to. There's an awful realization here. He asks, how long, O Lord, must I do this? And he goes through and he talks about the different devastations that are eventually going to come. This isn't probably going to come until about 150 years later in, in Jeremiah's time. But he's prophesying that there's going to be continual prophetic callings to the people, but they're not going to turn. They're eventually going to go into exile. And he's telling Isaiah this ahead of time, even though there will be a reprieve under Hezekiah, um, the eventual thing is that what's going to come, and Sandy read it right there at the end in verse 13, though a tenth of the land remained, it will again be laid waste. But, the, but as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What do you think that's referring to? It's the lineage of David. Okay, It's going to look like it's cut off. But Isaiah is going to tell us throughout this, chapter 11 is one example of this, that the holy seed, though it's cut off, a shoot will grow up out of the stump of Jesse. And there will still be hope. And I think it's the beautiful part of this is that, yes, you must face the difficulty and the discipline of the Lord because of your sin, but there is still hope. If I'm honest today, I think I have to skip through some of this, but if I'm honest today, I have to tell you that I think there's a lot of apathy in much of God's people. Okay, you judge for yourself if this is true of you. Or better, ask God to show you if you dare. See, when we put other priorities above matters, what matters to God, isn't something missing in our lives? Isn't maybe there a sense that we lack the transcendence of God? Or at least the knowledge of it? Are we not living in Judah in the times of Isaiah when serving God is only about what's convenient and comfortable or allowed at the end of a day if I have energy left. I have a sense that times are coming that are going to shake the church free of half-hearted Christianity. And if that happens, are we going to be ready for it? Sometimes when you're a pastor, you hear lots of excuses about why we can't do things for the Lord. And I'll tell you that a lot of times it breaks my heart, not because you're not jumping in and getting involved with me, but because we have a God who's worthy of it. He's worthy of all of our sacrifice. What is it that God really wants from all of this? I think for people to acknowledge His holiness, its moral beauty. Nothing like Him is in anything that's ever been created. He's calling us to Himself, and we are content with the disappointing and fading glories of the moment oftentimes. I think this passage shows us that what God wants is for us to realize He's worthy of captivating us, to hold us in thrall, that He's worthy of sacrifice and doing hard things. And you might think, well, does God want us to struggle? No, I don't think He wants us to struggle. But if serving God required it, would you? And there are plenty of times when the choice meant that it would be hard. Moses, after all, responded to the call of God, and Hebrews says of him that by faith he chose, rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, to suffer with the people of God. 
So he's willing to go a certain way and do the hard thing because he felt God was worthy of it. And I would just ask you, let's evaluate. And I would ask you, let God deal with your heart if there's some area where we're just kind of crawling through and going through the motions. Would you give your heart fully to him? Amen. Stand with me if you would. Let's uh, take a moment or two to pray. We've gone longer than we should. Kids already need to be in bed. Lord, I thank you that uh, you've given us such a great vision of what you're about here in Isaiah chapter 6. And I pray that you help us to take that. And and even though we weren't there for that vision, as we read about it, we understand that you are a holy and an awesome God. And that whatever it is in, wor- in this world that we're dealing with, whatever other crises we may be facing, the most important question that we have before us is what are we going to do in response to God? How are we going to respond in light of the cross? How are we going to live regardless of our times? And I pray, Jesus, you stir us today by your Holy Spirit to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.